Hi, you're listening to Secrets for an Inspirational Life with me, your host, Mimi Novik. I'm so happy and thrilled to have you here with me. I have created this series for all of us so we can change our world together and live a more holistic and balanced life. Together, we will share lots of inspiring stories from all walks of life, speak with leading experts, enjoy healthy living ideas, explore music and subjects that inspire each other to always have hope. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate all of you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Secrets for an Inspirational Life. How are you today? I hope that you are all well. I hope that life is treating you well and that wherever you are, there is some type of happiness and light in these uncertain yet awakening times that we are all facing. And that's something really that each one of us in the whole world, I can say really, is going through some form of a transformation, whether that be personally or collectively. There is not one person I think that hasn't been touched by these huge and really life-changing moments that are happening each and every day. What is important is that we realize that life is fleeting and it is only temporary. You know, however many years we're on this planet, it is all part of a journey. And that journey, none of us can tell really how long it's going to be. But what's important is the people that we meet along the way and who we actually make a difference to in their life and who makes a difference in our life and that we embrace change. It is not a bad thing. It is something that is guaranteed that every single day is going to be different, even though we think there's no hope sometimes. We must believe that there is because everything, even ourselves, changes. The cells in our body, our emotions, our moods. And it's something really that we shouldn't be fearful of because within that change, there is always new horizons to embrace. Now, today, Tonight, actually, we're here in the United Kingdom and it's late summer, if you can really call it late summer. And I am absolutely delighted to welcome my guest, who is a dynamic, inspirational speaker and coach, and that is Steve White. He has successfully transformed the cultures of both existing and newly merged organizations by developing the human potential through empowerment and confidence. Wow. I mean, that does sound amazing, I have to say. He inspires through imaginative and creative leadership, 
with people power at the heart of all those changes. He actually started as an apprentice plumber, would you believe, to then going on to running huge corporations. He's a nationally recognized and motivational speaker, and he talks about cultural change and transformation in his work. But he has, for the past couple of years, had different things happening in his life. And this just goes on to show all of us that change can happen at any time in our life. And this is his story and his journey. So I'm delighted again to welcome Steve. Hi, Steve. Hi, Amy. And thank you for that introduction. I, I suppose after having two years off, I've sat here and uh, it's for some for some reasons and some mm. opportunities, I I've forgotten what I did myself. You know, <laughs> my my primary role now is being uh, commonly known as Granddad Seaside. Um, oh, so my, okay, my, okay. my diary is only filled with work which concerns my grandchildren. So thank you for reminding me what I did and what I need to get back to at some point. <laughs> oh, you know. Thank you so much, actually, Steve, for coming on um, and sharing this time with me and the listeners, because really, I I mean, all really for what you have done in the past couple of years, especially all the things that you've achieved, of course, career wise, but it's also in the past couple of years that have totally transformed your life, haven't they? Tell us a little bit. Um, about what happened before the two years and then what you have been doing during these really transformational two years? Uh, well, my, my background, as you said, is change and transformation. So mm. inevitably, I was, I was often invited into organisations that were failing or in trouble um, or their bank balance was running away from them or indeed there was industrial disputes there. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I was blessed. I started off with in Lewisham Council, and I was blessed by having phenomenal leaders there who gave me huge opportunities to move up the ladder quite quickly. Um, I had a, a, a back problem at an early age, a degenerative spine. Mm-hmm. And um, as you said, I was a plumber, and perhaps I might get some work as a result of actually re advertising that. Um, <laughs> And um, I, I couldn't do building work beyond my early 20s because of my back problem. But mm-hmm. fortunately, there was an opportunity to go into management far sooner than I'd ever imagined. Um, although I'd, I'd always had aspirations to want to manage people, even from a, an early age, but was told at careers counselling, you know, you can't go into leadership or management unless you've got a trade behind you. And that was the advice that you would get at that time. So, um, yeah, and then, you know, I'd started in Lewisham. I went through lots of different positions in Lewisham. So I run the building works division and then moved over to parks and gardens, done some work in libraries, waste management, recycling, managed the incinerator plant. Um, and I just kept moving into new areas, uh, leisure um, and, and sports fields. And inevitably, it was the same problem in, in all of them. Um, it was daunting at first from someone being, uh, as I say, a, a, a plumber going into very, very different, diverse business areas. But 
you know, more than often people were downhearted, dejected, low productivity. There was more than often, very rarely, a clearly defined strategy. Um, so when you came into work, did people know what they were doing and how that could contribute to the bigger picture? No, probably 99% of all the cases. So it become quite easy and quite generic once turning one department around to bring those same tools into different departments. Uh, and more than often, they could change and turn around quite quickly if you just reignited that fire and passion within the staff um, mm. who, you know, the, the, the distance. And I, 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 I've had two years out, as you say, and I, I, I'm really worried now about those going back or those indeed working now because there was a, a huge divide, I think, even at an early age going into management. And I'm 57 now. Um, and I was in management early 20s, uh, the big divide of, you know, management sitting in ivory towers and not having any connectivity with the staff. Um, and I think that continued throughout my career. So we, we sort of, me and my fellow colleagues and associates, um, bucked that trend, you know, we, we didn't have big fancy offices. We sat amongst the staff. We would go out. We would socialize with staff we would enter into a, a whole number of events for charity so we were visible and connected with staff as much as we could because in turn if we were going to be successful it would be the staff helping us or indeed making us successful so how could we do that if we had a huge distance and gap between us with them now you talk about change management and that's something that you did, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that because I was reading about that and I also saw that it, I mean, that holds a responsibility in itself. It's a huge responsibility because people don't like to change. And I was reading about something that you wrote where you said that you have actually felt very vulnerable at times and actually have been attacked and victimized for wanting to bring these changes. Yep, very true. And yeah, you know, it's it's always very difficult. And, and I found it an early That's incredible, age. really. That, that's, that's scary, you know. Because... Oh, and I, I, I think it's commonplace, you know, how often mm. people openly admit to it. But I, you know, I, I certainly remembered, you know, I, it gave me an inkling into the psychology of management of how and why so many managers didn't tackle the problematic issues because more than often you knew there would be repercussions of, of that kind. Um, and certainly in my early days of having to go into areas where they, they were, there was rife with problems and more than often undesirable individuals were running the business and more than often telling the management what to do. So I would go in mm. on, on, on the line of towing the line and let's do what's right and let's, let's provide fantastic services to customers, you would sort of turn some of those stones over and discover lots of unhidden treasures of a whole host of corrupt practices. And you, you're then faced with that decision, even at an early mm. age, of do you do what's right or do you turn a blind eye to it? And, you know, my passion was always doing it right and doing it the honest way. Mm. And mm. and more than often, people get very angry because, you know, they feathered their nests for many years before I've appeared on the scene. 
then mm. all of a sudden, you know, the, that, that comes to an abrupt end and they're not too happy with that. So, there, you know, there was, there was a period of time, certainly for a, a number of years when I, when I was leaving Lewisham, where mm-hmm. I was attacked in pubs, attacked on a sports field, um, I was glassed over the head in in a restaurant. Oh my goodness! Um, and more than often, at the time, um, I think I I, I was married. Yes, I was married then. You know, my my wife at the time was almost too frightened to go out because you know we we couldn't go out in the area in which you lived through fear of bumping into someone who you may have restructured or dismissed, um, or indeed done neither of those but simply asked them to up their game um, because they hadn't done much to contribute towards the, the, the you know the target so you know it's bizarre and, and again you know it's it makes you really steely if you if you if you have to be in order to be successful because at times I remember many many years ago going round mm. to my mum my mum lived in the area and I'd pop in and have a cup of tea afterwards and my mum would say, you know, why do you make so much trouble for yourself? Just turn a blind eye to it sometimes, like everyone else. Mm. And I said, mm. I said, you can't, because I'll then be like everyone else, and the department won't change. And you were brought in then by whom? By the CEOs? Or how did it work? Why did they not um, want you to implement certain changes? It's a, it's a mixture. I mean, yeah, I think this was more the, the, the staff at the time, mm-hmm. and that was the uh, either manual or trades staff. Mm-hmm. Um, in the early days, I was either appointed by chief execs who would openly confide in me that they'd lost control, or indeed they, they avoided any responsibility of any connectivity to the department by saying, you know, this department or this organisation mm. is useless. I need you to fix it. Mm. And the, pro- the problem in some of those instances was I would go out, meet with all the staff, find out what the problems were, put a plan together. But inevitably, I found out that the problem was the chief exec who appointed me. And you can imagine right. the conversations of having to go back and say, I think you're the problem in this organisation, which was you know, never met with somebody doing a cartwheel of excitement. Um, it was easier if it was a board. In some instances, mm. a board has removed the chief exec uh, and they've specifically gone out with someone with expertise in change in picking up an organisation who's at rock bottom. So um, they were easier to manage, I think, because I had a free reign to go in and fix what was wrong as opposed to working alongside somebody who'd created the culture, which I was then going to turn upside down. And that really, it's scary. You know, when I was reading that, I thought to myself, my goodness, it sort of, it sort of, Steve, made me understand a little bit about when you have these huge, you know, battles for power that you don't really realise are actually going on on the outside. It's something that's boiling within. And there's a whole load of people entangled in a whole load of things. So it's not as simple when people want to bring about change of any sort, if we especially look at the current climate. There's a lot going on behind the scenes. Mm. Oh, absolutely. And particularly now, I think, you know, Mm. stress 
uh, and depression and, and certainly loneliness is certainly higher up in the agenda than it ever was when I was then applying my trade um, a number of years back. Um, and so when you're, when you're going, and that's why for me, the only way of doing that is to fully engage and make the change programs as inclusive as you can. But even mm-hmm. then, no matter how inclusive you are and how engaging you are, as you said at the beginning on your intro, there are people who don't want to change. No matter how much you engage them, no matter how much you cajole them or promote or develop them, they don't, they don't want to. And again, you, at times you have that knot in your stomach when you have that conversation with someone because mm. you know that it's going to be confrontational because no matter what skill you use in the book, they are adamant they don't want to change. You know, we had someone in an organisation, I won't name some of the organisations, but mm. we had somebody in a big, big organisation in Scotland and we bought in a dress code and the staff believed the, themselves that they would look more professional if we were to provide uniforms to staff. So rather mm. than just give them a uniform, you know, somebody said to me, we fear you're going to give us something which looks like a fast food takeaway shop. And I said, no, couldn't be further from the truth. Let's get designers in. Let's meet with them. And you design your own uniform. I'm happy to support what you choose. Mm-hmm. So they all chose it. They all came in. And one individual came in with their own clothes on and said, I'm not going to wear it. And you have to then make a decision because you have 99% of your team looking at you saying, Steve, this is unacceptable because we're all doing this, but you've got to do something for this individual. Mm. Um, and you know that you're going to have to force them to wear it or indeed then take action against the individual. And lo and behold, you know, that, that individual left eventually um, because mm. she was adamant she didn't want to do it. So, you know, there you are, the bigger picture of running a £50 million organisation, but you're having a number of those confrontational discussions with odd individuals who just adamantly want to fight against the programme. Some, sometimes for no reason whatsoever, um, other than just wanting to argue the case. Yeah, because some people like to argue. It doesn't really oh, matter what it's about, isn't it? It's a, it's a point. It's, I think it's, I don't know. I think it's their vocation in life. Oh, you know, I've just, met them all, Mimi. Yes, I, I, can believe, I can believe you, really, I can. Now, you went from doing that, you know, with huge responsibility and dealing with so many you know high-powered people to two years ago mm-hmm. leaving that yes yes my what my, happened my 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 father died in 1997 um mm. so a few years back now um and my mum has lived alone um and got early signs of dementia and she'd started to trip over. Uh, we had a, a carer, uh, a private carer arranged for her, my sisters and I. Um, and to cut a long story short, that was an horrific story in itself that the carer stole all my mum's personal savings. Yes, you which, told me. Yeah, mm, I of which, of which we couldn't pursue because my mum had dementia. They said it wouldn't stand up in court, even though my mum had really early signs. But my mum, my mum fell over one day, and the, mm. her main bone—I always forget the name of that main one—going um, down to the knee snapped and come out flesh wound. Oh, um, and she went into a six or seven-hour operation. But because she had osteoporosis and MS as well, and oh, recovering dear. breast cancer, oh, um, when they tried to put a pin in the bone, the bone just kept breaking away. 
so the operation took about seven hours. Eventually, they said, look, she's fine. We, we fixed it. But when she came around, um, her mild dementia had progressed to advanced dementia. So she didn't even know who my sisters and I were. Um, and so, that was through the operation? Yes. Yeah. And apparently this is quite common. that we. I've didn't... heard that. I've mm. heard that. So, my, you know, we, the whole... The whole case of managing her as a project you know escalated overnight and I think you know between my sisters and I I, I knew that at, at that time I was running mm -hmm. 25 care homes up in Scotland mm -hmm. I, I knew that I couldn't do that and play an active part nor could I be uh, reliant on my sisters doing everything and me not taking any responsibility myself so I made the decision I had to go to the board and the owner of the organization to say I'd only been there 18 months, so I'd, I'd literally just finished writing the strategy uh, which they wanted. So I, I, I was at least giving them something on which they could take forward um, to deliver the goals that, that, that were set out for me. But I then came back, um, and um, I'm here today, you know, two years later, I, I, I've taken a career break. It um, wasn't planned. I didn't imagine doing it. I've in all intents and purposes, I, I was a complete workaholic. I would never have introduced myself as that, but now mm. I've not worked. I've realised how much I was. So my mum's been in a care home, and then lo and behold, uh, COVID hits us, and she died uh, right at the beginning, um, almost the beginning when the virus was discovered. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a, a time when the care homes were just ill-prepared. And that's not a criticism of the care home my mum was in. They, they were fantastic as much as they could be. But across mm -hmm. the whole country, they were ill-prepared. You know, people just didn't have PPE. Um, there was no isolation, no segregation. And I think to a certain degree, I don't think any of us imagined the virus would escalate as quickly as it did. Mm, 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 mm. It was a big shock, I think, for every single person and for everyone in their own environment, you, you could never, you know, when you look back on life, how it was last year, you mm. can never imagine. I, you know, I, I sometimes ask myself, would it ever go back to that? But I know for sure something inside of me says we will never go back to how that was. No, no. I think, you know, society's changed fundamentally. Mm. I, you know, mm. although I've been off, I continue to talk to people and help people uh, provisionally without getting too involved. Uh, I'm mm. not charged, so I've not had any income for two years. But um, if someone needs help and assistance, then I'm always there to offer a helping hand. And I, what I have discovered, I think, in the last few months, certainly that, you know, assessing businesses now it's it's just a different world you know i think mm. businesses that i may well have recommended that could have made money before are now dead in the water i think you know shops are under pressure now online as the, the transition's been huge and i don't think albeit that the government scheme of the the half price meals i think there's a phenomenal amount of people who haven't ventured back into restaurants and bars mm. and probably won't um because very of the true. Mm, very true. I mean, now we have new rules in place in any case, and we don't know what tomorrow brings. 
that's in any case we don't know we never know from moment no. to moment no. we never did in fact i think maybe all of us were a little bit lulled in a false sense of security for you know through our lifetime that we sort of we live in hope as human beings we live in hope but we really don't know what tomorrow or what tonight or you know we really don't know what is in store for us in the future and i wanted to ask you because it was a huge act of nobility for you to actually give up your life to look after your mum. How did you cope with that from leading such a sort of high lifestyle in a way, busy, busy, to totally changing your life? It was, it was far more difficult than I could have imagined. I, and I, you know, I've studied psychology, every motivational method known to man. I've mm. been on a course of some description. And so mm. there I was, you know, impo- importing that knowledge into other individuals and having to switch on the button for myself. And actually, you know, it was, it was far more difficult. And I, I think that as well with dementia, mm. um, I manage care homes with high dependency units, uh, mental health, and dementia um, homes. But again, it's very different when it's someone in your own family. And actually, you know, my sisters and I, between us, and, uh, you know, for a, for a period, two of my sisters lived in Spain, and they would come over um, as part of the rotor. We, we kept a vigil for mum on a daily basis. There are very few days in a two-year period that she lived in the care home that we didn't cover a visit, which was very unusual um, mm. for care staff to see the frequency. And so, you know, I would go up and sit with her for, for an entire day, as would my sisters. So we would join in all the activities and we would try and talk to her as much as we could to try and get her to remember things. But, you know, some days her mind was completely elsewhere. Uh, and you would come out, I, you know, I live in Brighton and she was up in London. And I'd drive back late in the evening completely drained in a, in a way that I've never been drained working 16 or 18 hour days in a in a turnaround project you know I drive back knowing that I hadn't had any impact or effect on her um, she barely knew me on some visits and become very aggressive you know you would sit there and you could be abused for eight or ten hours really viciously and you'd have to sit there and tell yourself you know she was living with dementia and she wasn't doing that herself. And you, you hope then that just by sitting there, all of a sudden, like a flick of a switch, she would change and then talk to you as if she hadn't had the, the illness. Um, so it was very, very tough. Um, and, you know, my heart goes out to anybody having to manage that, those particular circumstances themselves. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's been a huge, a huge eye-opener for us. A very, very sad uh, illness to live with. Very, very sad. Yes, my, my friend actually, she, um, her father had dementia for 14 years and her and her family looked after him at home. He just died actually. And mm. watching the progression and, you know, for such a long period as well, 14 years, it's a huge length of time to the point of, he was very active and he liked, he enjoyed music and singing and dancing and 
that was one of the last things to go actually was his knowledge of music it was always something i, I think oh, they say that with dementia absolutely. patients it's the music that you know mm. in a lot of cases they remember for some reason and he didn't remember a lot of things but he could remember words of songs oh um, my mum was exactly was the same. she the same uh, yeah you know she was the heart and soul of every musical event and actually mm. she was someone all you know she, she'd always loved music as did my dad but mm -hmm. um she was never somebody who would jump up in a room and sing on the top of her voice but in the care home for two years it's exactly what she did you know most of all my facebook posts which appear from time to time you know from the anniversaries um mm. was her belting out a song in the middle of a living room with a walk-in frame mm. where you know she was equally unaware that she even had a problem with her legs so it was it's a bizarre thing to have to manage you know yeah she sat, she sat alone with independence and actually it's a, a big debate that i fought for years that you know for many years people fought about not putting people in care homes because they they felt that was part of being institutionalized and people mm. should live independently but elderly people living independently are as lonely as hell and loneliness kills more people quicker than an illness being contracted so you know it's 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 all very well for someone not living in those circumstances to say well i think this is what individuals need but Albeit it was too late. My, you know, I think if we'd offered my mum the opportunity to move in a care home before she had advanced dementia, she would have steadfastly said, no, not mm. a chance. And yet she sat in her own place alone, often not speaking to anyone other than the, the daily phone calls of my sister and I, yet moved in a care home, which she would have detested because she felt care homes for old people, um, mm. even though she was old. Um, for all intents and purposes. But, um, you know, she was involved in activities. She learnt new skills. It was just such a shame that she had dementia and so she was unable to savour it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a personal thing. Uh, there's good and bad in every situation, mm, I feel. Absolutely. And there's, you know, for every individual, it, it, it's different and we can't, you know blanketly you know say you know this is good or this is bad i think no, you know no. circumstance plays a lot or you know on that sort of um thing but steve you mentioned something about loneliness and um you know it's not just elderly people i think now i don't know about you i wanted to ask you is that how did firstly how did you cope did you feel lonely um in that caring position and how did you cope with that yeah it's it's a really weird one it, it, it's it's a topic that i've only had a i have a conversation with regularly with friends on walks so i i've walked for the entire lockdown mm. i've i've gone on our, uh, on a daily walk of a, of a minimum three hours a day um and it's very therapeutic it's a form of meditating for me so i'm walking along the beach road each day i've not even changed my my route to be honest because i just love looking at the sea mm. um and at times i sit here and i think yes am i lonely and I, I i don't want that to sound too depressing so i'm not sitting here begrudging my situation mm. you know i have I, I i've had a lovely life and i continue to do so but you know, would I like to be having more conversations with people or share that with someone? Of course. 
But equally, I wouldn't want to be in a relationship that wouldn't give me that peace of mind. But I think, mm. I think loneliness is very difficult. And, and actually, certainly, I, I've spoken at a number of events for suicide prevention. Um, oh, right. Okay. And, and one in Brighton a few months ago. And, and the audience were made up of all individuals who had attempted mm-hmm. suicide previously. And I don't know, I, you know, I'd never been in a specific audience where that, you know, all the audience had, uh, were there from a common denominator. But I was, I was really taken aback by how upbeat they, were, they all were um, and what they'd done to overcome their stress or loneliness or depression, what techniques and tactics they use, uh, and very open about how their mood still fluctuates. But hmm. they, they recognise that when, it, when there's a dip, then, you know, they need to push that alarm buzzer and mm. seek help. Uh, and since then, I've, I've got, I don't know, about 20, 12 close friends that I speak to regularly who's, who do suffer from depression, who in turn would call me at low moments and then I would talk to them. And hopefully by the end of that conversation, they feel... Uh, in, in, a, in a better state of mind and I think yeah there's, there's part of that bizarrely which helps me as well so it's it's always twofold you know when someone says yes. to me thank you so much for doing that I often tell them that actually you know they they've reciprocated the good feeling by you know I've always been a a, a servant um, I, you know I'm always there to serve and to deliver something whether it be a product or, you know, a new culture. And actually for me, I think what's been most difficult is being locked away and not being able to help people. And mm. subsequently why I've maintained that contact. And, you know, on my walks now, if people want, rather than have a long phone call, I say, well, why don't you just join me on a walk? Uh, and it's amazing how people, when they're de- depressed, retreat back in their homes and lock themselves away. And it's probably the worst thing for them. Um, and just getting out, we have a walk. They might not join me for the entire walk, but we'd have a cup of tea. And by that, they'd bail out and feel a million times better, just that fresh air and that camaraderie. And, and my worry is, certainly on lockdown, I think there are thousands, if not millions of people locked away now in fear of going out, have made themselves completely depressed uh, and their mental health is failing as a result of the current situation that we're in. I, I you know, I absolutely agree with you, um, Steve, on that. And I think that fear is this huge thing that really, I think, kills more hope and aspirations in life than anything else. It's, you know, when you're in the grips of fear, you, you actually literally can't do anything, whether that's fear of going outside because people are afraid of catching the virus or I don't know, it could be anything. You know, fear can appear to all of us in many forms and it's how we deal with it. And I think now is the time that we have to override that fear because unless we override that fear, we're going to make prisoners of ourselves. Mm. Very true. Very true. I think, like you said, you know, fear when, I, when we do change programs, mm. more than often, fear is the common denominator. But how that manifests is in low self-esteem or low self-confidence or low self-worth. So 
people tell themselves, I, I won't be able to do that, Steve. And, you know, it's, a, it's amazing when I say to someone, I actually think you're suited to that role. And they immediately tell themselves a hundred times they're not, but how they flourish in it when they just have that little bit of confidence and their lives change. And it's actually someone having that confidence to wrap their arms around someone and say, no, you know, don't doubt yourself because I actually trust you. And, you know, there, there, there is no fear around you not doing it because we're going to support you. And it's mm-hmm. just, you know, how often do people get that level of support? You know, I've, I've dedicated my career to it. And I think in all the places I worked, I'm sure most people would say that I went beyond whatever you know, measure I was there to do in order to help people through that process. And of course, some people don't want that, but generally, you know, change is daunting. And that, and, and being fearful of it is the common denominator to the blockage most of the time. Yeah, it's very true because I, I've been talking to people, you know, especially through lockdown as you do and you're on the phone or whatever. And a lot of people you can't meet because some because for whatever reason, whether they are afraid or you can't or, you know, again, mm. the circumstances are different for each and every one of us. And I think that's one of the things that should really be prominent in our minds and in our hearts is that every single person has their own battle and their own struggle. And sometimes we are afraid as individuals to share that fear, that loneliness, that frailty as a human being. And that's very difficult to, in this day and age, I think, to overcome because people are actually not coming together in a lot of ways on the physical realm, so to speak, but we're being in a way torn apart um, that we don't have that human contact and that human connection. So I think there must be a greater way, a bigger way that we can rekindle that contact, whether that be on, you know, an emotional, a spiritual level, because although we were meeting a lot of people, I think, I I think this can be said for a lot of us, there wasn't that much connection a lot of the time. It was very great. Absolutely. Absolutely. Would you you agree? Most bosses, when we interviewed them, Mm. we'd say, you know, Mimi, tell us about your team. And you'd say, oh, well, this one does that and this one does that. And I'd say, oh, I'm not worried about what job they do. You tell, tell me about them as characters. And yeah. they knew nothing about them at all. And they would often sit with them 12 hours a day. And that amazed yeah. me that how could you get someone revved up to do something if you didn't know what was burning inside them with passion yeah. to do? So, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a bizarre thing. And, and like you said about fear, being open about it, I think, you know, certainly in terms of depression and loneliness and suicide, that, you know, that's more prominent now, certainly uh, in the media. And I think, you know, looking back, you know, if I were to say to any of the bosses who had appointed me that I was either depressed or lonely or suffering from depression, mm. I think they would have got rid of me within five minutes you know it wasn't something that you could ever have a discussion with and I've been blessed I suppose which you probably noticed from part of this discussion that 
you know, I do talk a lot. I engage people. I, I know when to stop. So certainly if I'm counselling, I've shut up and just listened to someone. And more than often, if I have one-to-ones, I want to know everything about them. So I tell, you know, tell me a life story. Tell me everything. What were the hurdles? And I can paint a picture of an individual where I think they could fit in an organisation. And I'm, I'm blessed from those that during those discussions, they feel really comfortable and not fearful that they open up and tell me all sorts of things that they perhaps haven't never discussed with anybody else. My, my fear now is I think there, there, there has always been a huge gap that, that emotional intelligence, that spirituality with bosses and their co-workers, their managers, or, or the, you know, the, the mass working units. And I think going back, I, I was asked this question recently on radio, you know, what, what should they prepare for going back? And I said, well, you know, the, some bosses, and I, I'm not being dogmatic of all bosses, certainly lots that I've come across or I've had to manage. So from personal experience, mm. you know, they, they were woeful with this in the first place. So they're either going to be even worse when they go back or they're going to have to up their game. Because I think when people go back to the workplace, mm-hmm. it's a different world now. You know, you're... You know, a co-worker that you worked with may be under completely different pressures than what they were before. They may have anxiety because of what's going on in the world at the moment. They may have lost family members. Family members may have lost their jobs. So their income is strained. So they're still keeping that job. But in the back of their mind, they dare not tell you that they're looking for other jobs now because they need a greater income. And I think the only way they're going to overcome those hurdles and, and show more empathy is have real heart-to-heart to people when they go back to find out exactly where they are, what's happened to them over the last five or six months, and what can those bosses do in order to make that passage back into work as smooth as possible, even if it means having to do things way beyond the role of the individual. Because otherwise, I, you know, particularly with money, I think there's going to be so much insecurity out there with people yeah. losing their jobs that just because one person still works for you, the pressure on that family may be so tremendous that their productivity is going to either go out the window or they're going to go sick with anxiety or depression. So you're going to lose them anyway. So just spend that bit of time finding out where they are in order to give them some tools or assistance or guidance or just an arm around them. And I don't know how many people will even be comfortable doing that. Absolutely. I mean, this is the thing again, it's the, some of the most important things in our life is that human touch and the human contact. And it's a time of healing. We need healing on a personal level and on a global level. But how are we going to achieve that unless we all start to work together? Mm, very true, very true. And I think with this, you know, the, the scaremongering in the mm. press, um, yeah. the, the mm-hmm. sensationalism of some of the articles mm. um, are certainly sending people in the directors. But I think you know, th- there are shifts and there are movements. Inevitably, if you look hard enough on social media, people are coming together now to say, well, hang on, because I think people are reflecting more. I think I had a conversation today with people who are now 
worried because they're falling out with so many people. Uh, and in yes. a way, it's quite cathartic, I think, because mm. we're, we are evaluating the, the quality of people that we're connected to now. Um, and we are perhaps standing up for ourselves where previously we would just let it ride over our heads. Perhaps it's because we've got the time. You know, I'd, I'd certainly, you know, for, 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 for all my career, I worked, I suppose, minimum 10-hour days, probably more than that on occasions. And it was never about ego. I was never driven by money. I, I just always wanted to be successful to provide all the, 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 the trappings which come with that for my family. And then lo and behold, at the age of 57, I sit here now and I'm looking at the world with new eyes. You know, I, I, I didn't have the chance to walk along the beach on a daily basis. For the last 30 years, I've spoken about going in the sea every day. Now I do that. Um, so it's given me a huge kick up the backside and one that I would never have had if it wasn't for the lockdown. I know I would have just carried on working. Um, such as my my dad did, you know. My dad loved work, and the only the only advice he ever gave me was find a job you love because you'll you'll be doing lots of it if you want to earn money for all the things that you so desire. Um, <laughs> and and actually, I think, as you said, inadvertently, um, amidst all the pain and anguish and uncertainty, mm. it has provided a healing period for many many people. I believe it, even though there's been so much tragedy and so much upset and upheaval, it's a real time now that we have to heal, Steve, because if we don't begin to heal, I don't think we can all carry on at all in the way, you know, as we used to. I think it's a time to make a choice. Do you want to have the freedom? to be who we really are or do we go back to pretending who we are which is something that we spoke about didn't we mm -hmm. um, before we started the podcast and it's actually being your true self that mm. a lot of us found difficult prior to this yeah absolutely and I, I think you know I think when I I spoke to you previously I Looking back again in times of reflection, I look back and think, you know, I've been conditioned all those years. You know, I, I, mm. I couldn't, I had to wear a shirt and tie inevitably for most of my roles, uh, even though ties were becoming out of fashion, um, because certainly with the age bracket in care homes, um, very traditional, working with an elderly group, and they expected to see their CEO with a shirt and tie because they felt that it was unprofessional if he didn't otherwise. So mm. irrespective of whether I wanted to or not, I had to do that. I was clean shaven from the age of 16 to 55. Um, and that was shaving every day for work because, you know, designer stubble wasn't something which was celebrated. It was frowned upon. Um, mm. And even, which is a longer story than what we've got here, I had a tattoo uh, which I'd never planned, but I met a very spiritual Maori person who mm. I'd done some work for who drew a tattoo for me and said it was an honour to create a drawing. And he had a friend who then wanted to put the tattoo on me. So I'd sort of bumped into having a tattoo from my connectivity <laughs> with an individual. Yeah. Um, but, but even then, I couldn't show the tattoo at work because tattoos were frowned upon. So I had to 
pull my T-shirt down and make sure that I had a vest under my shirt because I, on one occasion someone said, oh, is that, you know, what's that on you? And I said, oh, it's just a mark. Um, and I thought, oh, you know, I didn't have my T-shirt on. So then being, as you say, completely free now, I, I, I am almost reinventing myself. If When I go back into work now, I can, I'm, I'm completely unconditioned. Uh, my tattoos are on show. Um, I've had, a, I've not shaved in two years. So I've got, I've got what is called designer stubble, um, <laughs> which I was never able to do. So yeah, actually I wonder, you know, I wonder how many people are still living like that and not living, not necessarily the life of their dreams. I wasn't saying that was a, a painful process to be in, but was I being true to myself at the time more than often I had to be subdued or, uh, close lipped in conversations because if I ever relayed what I really felt, I knew it wouldn't help a situation, even though it would be completely coming from a point of truth and honesty. So I've, I've played a subservient sort of role in keeping everyone happy and working together for the greater good of an organization and themselves individually. Um, but now you know, I can do what I want. I bumped into a consultant at one of my walks and yeah. he was he was earning a huge amount of money. And I said, what do you do now? And he was doing um, delivery for someone like Asda or someone. And he mm-hmm. said, there was, a jo- there was a job there. I re-evaluated my income uh, and I just took that. And I said, what do you think of it? And he said, I absolutely love it. And I wished I'd thought about something like this many, many years ago. He said, you know, I, I load up my own car. I got, you know, got my run. I go out, I have, you know, five minutes with each customer. I try and make an impression on each of them. Um, I'm autonomous. I don't have to answer to anybody. I absolutely adore it. And I wonder how many other people are going to have significant changes to their careers in a similar vein and actually do something that they really want because the, the chains and the shackles have been removed. Yes, that's exactly it. It's the chains of fear also, mm-hmm. because you want to possibly, for a lot of people, uh, conform. I mean, I'm, I'm totally against conforming, but that's just me as an individual. Um, but I know a lot of people through um, personal circumstance or whatever have had to conform or they have thought that they have had to conform and that then completely takes away the freedom of being oneself and I wanted to ask you Steve do you feel freer now do you feel liberated oh definitely definitely I, I'm I'm probably more freer and liberated now than I've ever been in my life probably um and it's it's really weird because having to work for others um uh, even in coaching and one-to-one, you know, my, my sole focus has always been on the other individual. So I was always the bit left behind, you know, and I, I never really focused much on me. You know, I've always kept fit and healthy, but I've never really looked at me as the individual or, or the main priority. And actually, you know, two years of being away, rekindling relationships. So, you know, we were, as you say, my mum's circumstances, we were, you know, as much as it was absolutely tragic, the circumstances, um, we were blessed to spend two intense years with her, um, albeit in her advanced state of dementia, but actually that connectivity to her 
we wouldn't have had had that not been there. You know, my, my dad literally got cancer, had a headache, went to the doctor and they said, oh, you need glasses. He got a pair of glasses, still had a headache. They said, oh, we'll send you for a scan. And I remember this day vividly, he come out of the hospital. I, I took him down there and he got in the car and he didn't say anything. And I turned around to him and said, what was it? And he looked at me and said, uh, I've got cancer throughout my body and I've got 12 weeks to live. Oh my goodness. And I remember, I, I, I can, I, I vividly, I, I've got a, a brain where I, I forget so many things. Um, and yet that is as vivid to me, that conversation today, as it was in, you know, in 1997. Uh, and how he handled himself was phenomenal. You know, he didn't, he didn't moan, he didn't complain. And he literally died 12 weeks to the day on that conversation. And he had no prior illness to that. And we we all talk about life short and live for the Mm -hmm. day. And, you know, it's just that constant reminder. And it's just unfortunate that people perhaps haven't gone through some of those circumstances. Still don't think it's going to happen. But, you know, it's, it's it's a shame that we've had to experience that to have the the kick up the backside or the slap around the face to say, look, there's a, it's a, a stark um, reminder um, of how quickly life can go. And, you know, my mum, my mum's life effectively ended then because mm-hmm. she had no interest in socialising, going out or meeting anyone because my mum and dad were everything together. They, they had no friends. They had friends, but they, in all my years of being their son, I, I never ever saw them ever go out to a social event with friends. And the only time they'd go out would be with my sisters and I. You know, they, my dad, when my dad was told he had 12 weeks, he said, I said, what do you want to do? You know, should we take you around the world? Should we go on a cruise? Should we go on a long holiday? And he just looked at me and he calmly put his hand on my shoulder and he said, all I want to do is spend time with the family, nothing more. And it's, you know, it's those little words mm. of wisdom which then strengthen you when you then move on because you're going to be faced with some of those discussions and decisions yourself in later life. It's a very, very difficult thing. And although death is a part of life, you know, we never quite get over the people that we lose and that we love. And, you know, they say you don't get over it. You just learn to live with it. Yes, definitely, definitely. And um, it's it's a tragic part of life, you know, but it is, you know, everyone that's born has to die. And it's something I, I suppose... In these times now, it's being faced with one's own mortality and those that we love. That is the biggest shock, I think, is that remembering that our time on earth is but the blink of an eye. Mm. Mm. I think for me, you you were saying about, you know, where I'm at as well is actually what what's quite telling which i've never imagined is mm. you know we when you lose both parents there's a, a there's a real feeling uh of not necessarily loneliness but emptiness when you when you've lost both it's a very different position but mm. more so the fact it's elevated me then as the eldest person in, in my family um so there you are you know looking up and there you are with all your aunts and uncles and nans and granddads and mums and dads, then all of a sudden 
what seems like a blink of an eye, you're sitting in that top, at that top table yourself. So my role has changed mm. with regard to my own children and my grandchildren and my sisters. I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in a different position, you know, the, not the position of employment that I was previously, but the, a different position within the family unit. Yes, because as life alters, we all then move on into new positions, you know, whether that be a state of being, you know, you could feel in a good mood one day and tomorrow you could wake up and you could feel in a dreadful mood and that is passing as well. And, you know, as you grow older from, you know, when you're a child to a teenager, to an adult, to, you know, a senior, if you're lucky enough to live that long. Yeah. And they're all sort of seasons of life, aren't they? Um, Mm. That you begin to feel differently. You can never, I think when you're, I don't know, let's say 30, sometimes you forget what you feel like when you're five because Mm -hmm. it's impossible because you've passed that season of that part of your life. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think, you know, my... My sons say, oh, you know, when I'm with my grandchildren, oh, you'd have never done that with us and you'd have been more stricter here. And people say, oh, when you become a grandparent, you then become softer and, you know, you change. And there is an element of that, absolutely. And I know I would let them do things that would have driven me up the wall with my sons. You know, I've got OCD for tidiness. And, you know, Mm. I remember, you know, giving my children a biscuit and I would hold a plate under their chin to catch the crumbs. (laughs) Oh, I literally, I, I do remember it. And now, you know, my, my sons uh, manage their children very differently. And rather than me say, oh, that's not the way I'd do it, I'm, I, I'm proud of the fact that they can, they can do it a different way, very, very much more natural. But I'm, I'm so much more calmer and relaxed. And that's a bit of, as you say, being free. But it, mm. is, it is about age and experience as well. You get to a point where we were saying earlier, you know, you choose where you want to argue or fight or contest. And actually, I think with that wisdom, you then recognise that there are so many times you don't have to. Um, and that's how grandchildren then live a completely different life with their grandparents than they do with their own parents. It's true. It's true. And grandparents do let their grandchildren get away with murder, I have to say. But, um, <laughs> you, you know, it, I think it, it, it's part and parcel of being a grandparent. But, you know, as we were saying that you mentioned it now, Steve, earlier, is that um, there is a time also now for shedding all that that doesn't resonate with us, that doesn't bring us peace, whether that be jobs, family, uh partners friends whatever our environment and it's important isn't it to surround yourself with people that actually really matter and actually understand you yeah you know people who want to celebrate your successes and help you achieve your goals you know i i suppose i suppose to two very good friends of mine recently who have just separated and you know, and you hear the story from both sides, and and it's just such a shame, you know, when you see these people who are so madly in love and had such great relationships, but lose that connectivity between themselves. And I'm not saying that from a ultra spiritual perspective, just a down to earth, 
how do you just get on and live with each other? And I, I think now, and again, I'm saying now because my head is in a different place, that, you know, is it, is it too much to expect in a relationship to share each other's goals uh, and help one another deliver them rather than contest them or bemoan the situation? Actually, if your partner said, look, I'd really want to do this, but I'm not sure if I could do it, part of me might me i would always be that way anyway but part of me now would say okay well let's hatch a plan and make that happen because i'd want to see that person fulfilled in exactly the same way as an employee in one of my organizations but so so many just lose sight of those common goals or even if they're not common goals giving one another the space to go off and live life to the full it's you know it, seem, it seems ridiculous in some sense how people lose that, what was so special so quickly and so frequently nowadays. But yeah, I think equally, if you get to the point where you know you have gone in different directions, and it sounds really callous, but to sever those ties as quickly as you can and spend more time then with people who embrace you, love you and support you, rather than sitting there hanging on an edge thinking, should I go or will he change or will she change? And they spend years. You know, I, I often go into organizations and I'll say to someone like you, Mimi, how long have you worked here? And mm. you'd say, Steve, I've worked here 32 years. And I'd say, have you enjoyed it? And you'd say to me, not really. And I'd say, when did you realize you, didn't, you weren't enjoying it? And you'd say, within the first year. And I feel so sad for that individual that mm. they, knowing that they didn't like the job, oh, they stayed yeah. there for 30 months. And this is common. And why is it, I go back to that word that you use, fear, because they felt, because they got the job, if they, if they then broached the subject with their boss and said, look, this isn't for me after all, they were fearful that the company would then throw them out. Rather than actually, someone said to me, I'm not sure if this is the fit. And I'd say, well, talk to me about what you think is better suited to you and let's mm. see if we can move you somewhere else. But obviously those conversations still don't take place in the workplace. I don't think even they take place in the house. In the no, home. no, no. In, you know, I, I don't think as humans now, for some reason, uh, people have lost the courage to speak up mm. and are pretty silenced by a lot of things. I was talking to a friend of mine this morning, actually, and um, he said something totally really unimportant. It wasn't really even important. And I said, well, that's your opinion and I'm going to give you mine. And he said, well, why do you have to give me your opinion? <laughs> and, and, and I thought... What do you mean by that? You know, I thought, well, I have to give you my opinion. He said, well, can't you just accept my opinion? I said, no, I can't. And then I don't know. I sort of flipped in that moment. And I said, but you're not going to silence me. You're not going to keep me quiet. You know, I'm going to say what I want to say. Mm. And he said, but why? Why do you need to do that? I said, because that is me. And I'm finding that a lot, that I'm saying, well, actually, that is me. And if you don't like it, don't like it. You know, good luck. Have a nice life. Mm. Um, just move on, you know. Um, someone once very wise said to me, you know, there, 
they were profoundly spiritual and I remember going to him and he was a very wise man and I said so and so you know he's not happy with me and I was I was much younger then and so and so is not happy with me this friend's not happy and she's always complaining and he said you know it's something very simple which I really hold fast to that and he said be with who is happy with you yeah, why are you being with people that are not happy with you Mm, absolutely and I, I think you know we've had two chapters I think that the whole Brexit debate which is mm. st- still going to rev up again soon but mm. the um that split the uh the country in two like never before because mm-hmm. people were being direct but in some instances quite ob- obnoxious and quite rude mm. to people with different views and actually I think families friends work colleagues yeah split indefinitely as a result of some of those quite vocal conversations and viewpoints rather than embrace as you say it's a very different thing though it's a very grown-up conversation to Mm -hmm. listen to someone wholeheartedly and say well thank you for that me but i don't agree with a word you say here Mm -hmm. but that's your view i love you as a friend and I recognise that's your view, and I'll still support you, even though I have a different viewpoint. So you think, wow, well, Steve doesn't agree with me, but he's still supporting me in that instance. And you'd very rarely have a conversation where someone says that to you. Because mm-hmm. everyone, too many people want to impose <laughs> their own view over you, as opposed yes. to listening to what your view is anyway. Well, this is true. And whereas before, you know, if someone said to me, you know what, that's yellow, and I knew it was pink, I would say before, you know what? It's yellow. If you want it to be yellow, you let it be yellow. But what I'm saying now, Steve, is actually it's pink. (laughs) Um, But if you want to believe it's yellow, then you believe it's yellow. And that's fine. Just, I don't believe it, and just leave me alone with that. And people want to argue, you know? Mm. They want to say to you, but why don't you believe it's yellow? And I haven't got the energy or the inclination to argue. So I just say, actually, this is not my type of person anymore. And I'm clearly not their type of person anymore. And that's absolutely fine. Yeah. And I think, uh, again, when you're looking at the bigger picture, the global and the local, you Mm. know, I'd always had aspirations to change the world. But Perhaps, you know, if I'd focused on myself first and changed myself and then what was local, then I would have had a bigger impact. And I actually, I think, just drawing that all back in now to have a very small circle of friends, spend far more time with my family, uh, not as much time as I like because I'm I'm distance between us, but, you know, but more time than I would have ever spent with them. And if I do socialise now, it's with people, as you say, 100% not say on your side supporters you know people who you recognize you have that connection with for whatever you know they may well have opposing views but there's something where you support each other you know we we now have that opportunity or i do particularly at work you know i i would often have to go into work and i coach bosses who say but i don't like that individual steve and i don't like that and i said they're not paying you to like anyone they're paying you to get productivity out of them Mm. And actually, you know, I've worked with lots of people who were rude, brash, um, but you can't let it affect you for the greater good of the organisation, unless they're doing it to other people. And of course you address it. 
But actually, as you say, going back to being free, for the first time in my life, I've, I can choose. But it's, it's an interesting point, which I have to add, is I didn't have to wait for lockdown to do that. And I suppose if you, know, if, if, if you and I were coaching other individuals stuck in those circumstances, I would mm. still encourage them to take that stand now, even if they are, as you and I were in the old days, succumbing to people's views and playing the subservient individual then stand up for yourself and be yourself. You know, if, if there's one thing you can yeah. leave as a legacy is that you were yourself throughout and not pretending to be somebody else. I remember when I first got into management, I, I tried because you've noticed I've got this very down-to-earth London accent and I've tried to speak a bit posher. Um, and <laughs> is it people, South London? Yes, yeah. And people think, <laughs> what the bloody hell is he talking like that for? And someone said to me, just do be a posh accent. Do a posh accent. No, please. I'm not now. I'm not. I'm going to do it when you finish the show. And, do it um, now. You have to no. do it now. Now that you've but said I that. Would, I, I would change with the audience group. So, you know, if, mm. I, if, if I was talking to builders, inevitably you'd be throwing in the odd swear word with them. And they love that because they felt you were one of them. Mm-hmm. And then when you were dealing with the elderly or counsellors, you would start to pronounce your S's and T's. Uh, far better way than you would previously. And mm. and actually, I don't know if it's being wiser, older, or just more confident in yourself, that the more yourself you are, you know, the quicker people take you as you are on face value, far quicker than trying to pretend someone. And again, I think we've all done that by working in the big corporates, so coming to fitting into a piece of somebody else's jigsaw. Yeah, I mean, luckily, I have to say luckily, um, I know people would disagree on some points here, but luckily I've not um, been part, I've never worked um, in that respect in big corporations um, because it was never my thing. So, but I do work, you know, with people um, who do work in major, you know, banks and huge, you know, places that um, really it's very, very difficult to maintain your identity. But in any case, it's it's not even to maintain your identity, but people don't even know in the beginning who they are. And that's why it's so easy to lose yourself, I think, in any sphere of life. Unless you really know who you are, I think you can be led um, to any destination, albeit possibly the wrong destination. So I think what's important here at this time is that we find what is our vocation, who are we, um, what do we stand for, really? What do we stand for as an individual? Otherwise, well, what's the point of anything? Mm, very true, very true. And that, you know, that could even start from the minute you appoint someone, even before they start, you, you should have to go through something where all of that, you know, they're testing you to find out who you really are. But in itself, it's a backward compliment because you, you may have to actually think about that, reflect and come up with that answer yourself for the first time ever. So, you know, when you, when you walk through my doors, I should intimately know everything about you, where not to lead you, where to take you and how you're going to perform at your highest level what's going to ignite you within the organisation. And actually, again, pound for pound in many, many organisations over the years that we've looked at, 30 years, 
you know, even induction processes are woeful. People, you know, turn up, the person's not there. They're thrown on a chair temporarily, even though they appointed this individual three months before. Uh, they haven't got the email set up. They're wandering around for the first day. And by the end of the day, they go back to their partner and they're already disillusioned. You know, rather than actually creating yeah. fanfare, when they walk through the door, it should almost be like stars in their eyes with the staff are clapping them to say, thank you for joining and becoming an integral part of this team. And we all know everything about you. So it's, you know, it's, it's not rocket science, but not many still do it. But do you help individuals also put to one side the corporates? Are you also helping individuals, Steve, who work for themselves, for example? Yes. Yeah, from all yeah. walks of life. You coach yeah. people, you know, whether they be, I don't know, hairdressers, librarians, lawyers, I don't know, yeah. restaurant owners. You still are able to bring that, I don't know, that fire within that individual, regardless of what walk of life they're in. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And actually, you know, that's, that is the common, the common denominator, as you say, the fire. You know, if I have a conversation, mm-hmm. someone says, I'm in trouble, I need this, I need that, can you come and meet me? You know, once, once I understand for, for what reason are they wanting to get bigger or turn around, then that, that would in turn make my decision whether I'd want to work with them. You know, there's, there's individuals who say, look, you know, the product's blooming rubbish. Um, I don't care. I want to earn millions out of it. Um, and I'll happily pay you a high fee to do that. I wouldn't be interested. And I've turned down many, many opportunities where actually the role doesn't ignite my own passion. You know, right. okay. care homes, you know, it's a no-brainer. In the housing, a no-brainer. You know, improving the quality of people's homes in which they live in, making sure that the services are all first class. So people live in a home and say, we're blessed to have this individual landlord um, because they look after us. In care you know, going beyond what is the care mantle uh, in sports, leisure. You know, I've managed leisure centres who had literally no money and cracks in the wall and holes in the ceiling. Um, but the staff was so brilliant in there that customers refused to go anywhere else to modern gyms with better technology because they love the experience and the interaction with customers. And that's what it is. How, you know, how do you make people feel good about themselves? And it's mm. a friend of mine went to Dubai a number of years ago and it was his birthday. I'd never been there myself, but he, it was his birthday and um, he got to reception and they said, oh, hello. And that they greeted him by his name. Now, they'd obviously done some research on a picture of him. So they'd studied and said, look, at some point during today, he's going to check in. We don't know what time. But when he comes in, the first person he meets should be greeted and we're going to use his name. So that he left him a, a really nice impression. He got to the reception they greeted him by his name as well. And they said, oh, by the way, um, happy birthday for tomorrow for your celebration. He thought, nice touch again. They've already checked that it's my birthday tomorrow. He then got in a lift and the, the attendant in the lift looked at him and said, hello, Dr. So-and-so, um, good luck for your birthday tomorrow. So you know, what that makes me think of, it gets me excited, is what mm. sort of team meetings have they had? You know, they've, they've had team meetings They've looked at everyone who's checking in the next day and they've prepared themselves to wow those individuals when they come in to book that room. And that's what's driven me, that sort of excitement of, you know, if you're going, you know, I always used to say in the early days, you can fit a toilet in someone's house, 
the same way a million times over. There's a million contractors out there and a million contractors are coming up with your toilet. But actually, how can you do it different with customer experience? You know, by contacting before, giving them a date and time, um, actually wrapping it in a paper where you would say to reassure them that it's been sanitized. You would clean up after you. You would speak to them. So there was a whole host of things that we started to add around um, delivery of service where someone would say, wow, they absolutely go the extra mile here. And it appears they really care. Um, and that's what I've taken anywhere. A great, a great example is street, street sweepers. Often, most people ignore them. They do an absolute invaluable job. Uh, very insular uh, and not networkers, predominantly street sweepers. Um, not very socially inclusive. They like to be out there in all weathers, sweeping. And I said, I want to call them in for meetings. And they said, oh, they won't want to come in. And I said, why not? And they said, they don't, they don't like meetings. So I said, well, I'm going to go out and speak to them and I'll get a broom and I'll just join them. So I used to go along and then used to think, what the hell is he doing here? And I would speak to them. And actually, without, you know, without any understanding of their background, 99% of them had phenomenal careers, um, pilots, doctors, and they just chose to go to giving something back to communities. That's why they, you know, the, the, the perception of management were they were all stupid because they were road sweepers. And that was literally their perception. And these were highly intelligent individuals. And all of them said, you're the first manager we've ever had in our careers ever come out to speak to us. So they made assumptions of their well-being, their education. And far too often that happens as well because of the look or the way somebody sounds as opposed to truly just getting to know them. And in all those conversations, there was just slight little twists and turns you could create around their roles, which made their jobs more enjoyable. You know, the, the biggest thing they detested was managers would go out to give them extra bags. So they, they'd drive around. Inevitably, they'd be driving around to see if they were still there to spy on them in those days without technology. And if it was pouring a rain, a manager would wind the window down one inch and try and stuff the bag out the top of the window to avoid mm. getting out to stand in the rain, which the sweeper had to stand in for 10-hour shifts. So I used to, when they told me that, I used to then just jump out. I'd have a suit on, I'd be soaked, and they'd be so embarrassed, and they'd say, oh, Mr. White, you've got to get back in the car. And I'd say, no, 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 it's good for you, it's good for me. And the perception of me as the leader then changed overnight. You know, these workforces would do anything for me because they could see that I was one of them. Yes, this is important. This is important is that it's, again, we come back to the thing about human contact and the fact that we are all human. And you know, some people like to think they're above somebody, mm. but there is no such thing. I, no. We are all equally human. And I think possibly maybe where your success is, Steve, is that one of the areas is that you do approach people on this humane level. And as you said, get to know them as people, as opposed to, you know, employees or, you know, whatever label you want to put it on somebody, it's about getting to know somebody. And I think that's one of the most important things. And I must ask you now, as we come to the end, you know, um, where do you go from here? 
what is your next um, adventure? Oh, why did you have to ask me that? <laughs> um, who, know, who knows? I, everyone seems to think I've retired, but I certainly haven't because I've been living off my savings for two years and that's um, rapidly decreasing the pot. Um, so mm. I've got to go back. I, 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 I say to myself at times, I'm not going back into the corporate world that I've escaped. But do you know what? If someone gave me a call, it was the right board, the right chief exec, the right business area and the right ethical people who met me and said, look, this is what we need. Can you do it? I would, I'd still think there's another big challenge in me. On the other hand, you know, I might, I might just do something completely detached from what I've ever done before. You know, I don't know. You know, it could be holistic treatments. It could be something wildly different to the world I've got. But either way, I would, the key parameters for me are having, having more freedom and flexibility with family uh, and to maintain the sort of lifestyle that I've got now to make sure that I have my walks, my regular exercise. I'm not saying, you know, it's part time, but I'm, I'm not going to be working 16 hour days again. That's for sure. So mm. something equally, which, you know, lights a little spark inside of me. And that could be anybody and anything because someone has a conversation with me they're in need of change they're in a crossroads they're losing money they're about to lose everything and they just need one extra pair of eyes or another arm around them then you know that I could be that person depending on what the circumstances are and where can people get hold of you um Steve I've got I've got a Facebook account which you'll find me on there, Instagram account, or mm -hmm. you know, most of the businessy if it's just business, um, uh, they can catch me on LinkedIn as well. I'm, I, I inevitably do lots of uh, online coaching on LinkedIn, and I've done all of that for free for the last two years, just actually just to keep myself well oiled. I I just couldn't afford to not do nothing, but at the same mm -hmm. time, if someone calls and is in desperate need. I couldn't think of anything worse in just saying, well, I'm not working. Can I pass you over to someone else? So, you know, I'm, I, I'm always going to be devoted to helping people. And it's something you said to me, it's, you know, my drive is to help people live their lives to the full. I want people to wake up and they're, once their eyes wake up, they have that excitement and fire in their belly that they want to go to work or accomplish whatever goals they set because of something that I've helped them with. And that, that drives me on like nothing else. I think that's a noble cause. And um, as you help people, as we all try and endeavor to help others, they also maybe unknowingly help us along our journey. That's, I think, the most important thing to remember is that we are really part of a huge human race that not is just a race, it's a family. Mm -hmm. And if we are to survive, we must really join forces. I agree. Thank you so much for coming on. You know, really fascinating, fascinating listening to you and your story and your wisdom and I always ask my guests this at the end Steve is tell us something tell me and the listeners out there what 
advice would you give? You know, these are desperate times in many ways. What advice for hope, something that has kept you going through life, that you would impart your wisdom out there? I suppose even I've always been uh, an admirer of the law of attraction. I think for me, it's a, it's a simple principle to follow. You know, even those who are not spiritual or into motivational methods, I think for some, they would think that was all gobbledygook. Certainly when NLP come out, people run for the hills when somebody announced that they were an NLP practitioner. And I think for me, the simple thing is around everything happens for a reason. I think that's the thing what's kept me sane. And I know even in those darkest moments when things are very, very tragic um, and you are at your lowest ebb, if you constantly tell tell yourself something, that everything happens for a reason and faults become things. So if, if everything that has been tragic for me, um, when my dad died at an early age, which, you know, I, I was ill prepared to deal with that. I think I, I don't know what more I could have done, but I didn't feel as mature and confident enough as I would be now had I be faced with that conversation now. But afterwards, in the darkest moments, I was only in my early 30s. I'd I'd said to myself that everything happens for a reason. And lo and behold, as you say, for all those dark moments, uh, a shard of light appears. And actually, I think when my dad left us, it pulled our family closer together. We were closer with my mum. We'd become a protective unit to my mum. And lo and behold, 20-odd years later, the same things happened again. So I asked myself again, if everything happens for a reason, what's the reason? And actually, I think what would drive us now is that myself, my sisters and my own children have become closer. So I think constantly tell yourself everything happens for a reason, even when it's dark and dismal, because I think it's so easy to get in a very dark place and feel that you can't go forward. I think even, as you say, recognise that there will be dark days and accept that. Um, some days I do feel lower than others, particularly when I'm on my own here. Uh, I don't feel like going out for a walk. And I just tell myself, my body's telling me that it doesn't want to do that today, but tomorrow will be fine again. So the driver for me has always been everything happens for a reason. I hope everything that is my input with every individual and every organization, there has been a reason for me being there. And I hopefully as an outcome and a legacy, but for myself as well, I think it's been the, the, the sort of standing point for me to reflect back to it each time, which gives me the strength and the faith to move forward and know that we do move forward one step at a time, no matter how difficult the circumstances. And that's all it is, isn't it? One step at a time. Mm. Mm. I, I should end on a song there. It sounds like a song title. It does, doesn't it? Is there a <laughs> song that goes like that, actually? <laughs> I'll find one. <laughs> Come back and sing it. We'll, we'll have a little sing along no, together. <laughs> oh, good advice, though, actually. Very good. You know, all joking aside, it's excellent advice. And I always believe that. And I always believe that, you know, we meet people for a reason and there is no <laughs> such thing as a coincidence. So um, while we're going through it, sometimes we don't understand it. And it's only maybe years afterwards that we understand, but it's not about really understanding. I think it's about acceptance. 
in all of that. And um, with acceptance and grace, I think we can really move mountains. But thank you, Steve, again for joining me tonight um, on this September night. And, you know, I wish you all the very best in whatever you do. Thank you, Mimi. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. And actually, you know, you've, you've reignited part of my brain that's been dormant for two years. Oh. So no doubt tomorrow I'm going to be doing some hustling and chasing people for some business leads. <laughs> some ducking and diving, as they <laughs> yes, say. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, excellent, excellent. And um, do come back and tell us how you got on and whether you've changed careers and now you've become a well-known healer and a therapist, because that would be quite another fascinating subject that we could go into. Mm, who knows? Who knows, indeed. Watch this space. Yes, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, take care. Thank you, Mimi. All right, take care. Thank you. And you. Okay, Thank bye. You. Bye. Bye. Steve White. Indeed, there is a reason for everything, and... We must keep going, no matter what. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am really, really grateful for all of you and all of you everywhere that listen and take a moment of your time to share moments with me and my guests. Until next time, take care and lots of love. Thank you for listening to Secrets for an Inspirational Life, brought to you by your host, Mimi Novik. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and see you in the next episode. For more information about Mimi Novik and her books, music and inspirational work, take a look at her website, www.miminovik.co.uk.